Today we're um, reading Mark 11 from 1 to 25. It's on page 823. And today's reading focuses on Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. It's a very important part of the book of Mark. Eight hundred and twenty-three. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Morning, friends. Let me add my welcome to that of Pete. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's James Lewis. I'm the Senior Assistant Minister here, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, working through that passage uh, with you today, uh, this morning. Uh, so will you pray that God will richly bless our time in his word?
Father God, we thank you uh, for this beautiful day and for this wonderful opportunity to come together and freely uh, engage with you in your word, in the power of your spirit. Uh, Will you please bless our time? Help us to see Jesus clearly. Uh, Whatever our stage of life, whatever our uh, background, whatever part of the journey with Jesus we're on, will you help us to see Jesus clearly? That we would worship him and serve him all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, Mark 11, the day has come. We made it. Uh, We've been following Mark's story of Jesus, uh, crown and cross, since March. Uh, We read the very first week, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, that Jesus is the King, the Saviour, the Messiah. And now, uh, 11 chapters later, three years later in Jesus' life, the King arrives in Jerusalem. And one of the things that we're going to see again and again is that Jesus is no passenger. He's no passive victim, just sort of swept along by events that he can't control and doesn't understand. Now we see that he's in control. He's guiding and directing events. So we saw verses 2 and 3 that as they get close to Jerusalem, Jesus sends a couple of disciples ahead to organise a ride. Just go grab a a colt that you'll find and if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say the Lord needs it. And, And that's exactly how it plays out. Uh, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, it seems a little bit like a Jedi mind trick or something. You know, they're untying the cold and say, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you tried that with your neighbours. You're wheeling uh, their lawnmower out of the garage or you're carrying their TV across the lawn and they say, what, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. Yeah. I, I don't think that would go so well. Um, but here in Mark 11... Uh, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the master of even a cult, is directing and guiding events. And it's not that he's tired and he needs a ride into Jerusalem. Uh, you wouldn't choose a cult that had never been ridden before for a nice and gentle ride. And it's not that impressive a ride either. It's not a war horse or a chariot. It's a donkey or a colt. Um, that's a bit like driving a Kia hatch, isn't it? Um, uh, no offence if you, if you own a Kia hatch. I'm sure it's very reliable and fuel efficient and affordably priced. Um, but it's not that spectacular a car, is it? A ride. It, it, it's not a war horse or a chariot. And, and so Jesus here is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a colt. So what is he doing? Well, he's deliberately lining himself up with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was born, Zechariah prophesied, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is deliberately, intentionally hinting, pointing to himself as the Messiah, as the king. And it says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. And that's exactly what the crowd does, isn't it, in Mark 11. They throw down cloaks and branches. They call out Hosanna, which means save. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king has come. All the expectation, the hype, the drama, the tension of Jesus' life, the purpose of Jesus' life is about to, is beginning to reach its fulfillment. It's like all the excitement of a long-awaited birth of a child or a wedding day or starting a new job moving house, going on a big overseas trip. It's exciting. The day has come. And so then this really amazing thing happens in Mark's story. Events in Mark begin to slow down. 
Let, let me show you. Uh, chapters 1 to 10, which is where we've been of Mark, cover about three years of Jesus' life, from the beginning of his ministry to him entering Jerusalem. Then chapter 11 to 16, where we're about to move, covers about one week of Jesus' life. So that's two-thirds of Mark's story is drawn out over three years, and then one-third is zeroed in, focused in on one week in Jesus' life. It would be a bit like if someone made a movie of your life. I know that's a scary thought for, for most of us, but imagine one of those uh, big epic sagas. You know, they go for three hours in the cinemas. So they allocate two hours to three years of your life, maybe from about 35 to 38 or something, and then one hour to just one week. Think about what's gone on in your life in the last three years, 2013, 2012, 2013, 2014. And then think about what's gone on in the last week. And for most of us, it's been a fairly ordinary, dull week. It seems like so much has happened in three years and not much in a week. But that's what Mark's going to do here. So much in one week. So so what's he doing? What it does to us is it helps us see, it helps us feel that this last week of Jesus' life is really, really important. It's kind of more important than the three years that's come before. It's so important. So if you've kind of dropped in and out of our Mark series, if you've kind of tuned in and out of our series, today is the guilt-free, get-out-of-jail-free pass card. Today is the day to tune back in, connect back in, and and, and it's definitely not the time to drop out or, or tune out because whether you've been in church for many, many years or whether you're fairly new to church, the next five chapters of Mark could wonderfully transform your life. And so the question before us today is, do you really know Jesus? Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. No, no, do you really know Jesus? Think of it this way. I don't know if you've had the experience of uh, talking to a a client or a customer on the phone or you hear about um, one of the teachers at school or the parents uh, of one of your kids' friends at school. You haven't met them. You've just talked on the phone or you've just heard about them. And, And so you form an impression in your mind of what they're like. And then you meet them. And they're so different, aren't they? They're so different. Uh, For me, it's often that I talk to people on the phone and then I meet them and they say, oh, I thought you'd be older. You look very young to be a minister. And then I say, well, I've been married, you know, over 16 years and we have four kids. And then, and then you can see they're kind of trying to do the maths in their brain. What age did you get married at? Like 12? Because you look like 27, not 40. And I've seen a few people try and do that maths now. But you get the point, right? You can form an impression of someone without meeting them and then it's so different from who they really are. And so the question before us today is, do you know Jesus? Or if you just formed an impression in your mind of him? Because today and in the coming weeks, Jesus is going to do and say some things that are going to trouble us, unsettle us. He's going to curse the fig tree for not having fruit. He's going to drive people out of the temple and cause a ruckus. He's going to say some things about faith and prayer that we'll find hard to wrestle with. And and so we're going to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? So three things today. Three things we're going to look at him in the temple. We're going to look at what Jesus says about faith. And then we're going to see him again coming back into Jerusalem. And at each point we want to ask, do I really know this Jesus? It's going to be a little scary, a little bit exciting and hopefully very, very helpful. So let's go. First of all, the temple. Are you passive or passionate? 
Have a look at verses 12 to 14 of uh, Mark 11 with me. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing the distance of fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds a bit like you or I out on a Saturday morning and we decide that we, we'd like a coffee, like we really need a coffee, and we go into a cafe and they don't have any coffee. And then you say, may you never serve coffee again. And then you storm out. Um, it seems a bit harsh. And then Jesus seems to get cranky because he goes in the temple court and he starts flipping tables over and driving people out. He seems very cranky and harsh. But there is a lot more going on here. What Jesus is doing here is giving us a story sandwich. A what? Well, you know, a piece of bread with filling in the middle. Yeah, I know what a sandwich is, James. But what's a story sandwich? Well, let me show you. Here's one I prepared a little earlier. And my clicker works. There we go. So there's a sandwich. We've got verses 12 to 14. We read about the fig tree. Then verses 15 to 19, uh, we read about the temple. And then verses 20 to 21, we read about the fig tree again. Did you see there's two pieces of bread with a sandwich, a filling in the middle? Uh, That's what's going on here. The fig tree stories are like the bread surrounding the filling, which is the temple story. Now, here's the thing about sandwiches. It's all about the filling. The filling is where it's at. The filling is the focus. Yes, I know there's some really nice bread around these days, sort of sourdough and Turkish bread and all sorts of different grains, but but the filling is where it's at. Without the filling, it's just a couple of pieces of bread. The focus of the sandwich is the filling. And so that's what's going on here in Mark 11. The fig tree stories either side, the two pieces of bread, are there to illustrate, to explain what's going on in the temple for us. So let's see what's going on about the fig tree. Here's what I learned about fig trees during this week. Fig trees will produce a little bit of fruit. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's called a pagim, uh, before they come into leaf. So it's a little bit of fruit. It's not as big as the fully grown uh, fig fruit, but it's still very edible and very nice. And in Jesus' day, people quite often ate them uh, as they walked along. So when you see leaves on a fig tree, you're expecting the fig pagim to be there because they come in before the leaves. And that's what happens to Jesus. He sees this fig tree in the distance with leaves. He expects the little fruit. And when he gets there, it's not there. And so he curses the fig tree. So why curse it? Why not just leave it alone and move on? Because it's not really about the fig tree, is it? Jesus is giving us a story sandwich. The two pieces of the fig tree, the cursed and then it's cursed, uh, are just there to explain and highlight and illustrate what's going on in the temple. They're a picture of the temple. So what's with the temple? Well, the short answer is that the temple has all the signs, all the leaves, but no real worship, no real spirituality. I want you to notice something with me. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Then the next day, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. You see, he's focused in on the temple courts. He hasn't come to Jerusalem just to wander around and browse. He's come for the temple courts. What's with the temple courts? This is where we would have got to go. 
as non-Jews. This is where the nations, the Gentiles came to worship and pray. And Jesus, verse 17, quotes Isaiah that God's intention was that the temple would be a house of prayer for all nations. So the the, the temple courts is where the non-Jews were meant to come and pray and worship. But did you notice there was a problem? The religious leaders had set up a money market, a, a cattle market in the temple courts. Not very easy to worship and pray with all that noise. It'd be like you or I trying to do church at 9am on the floor of the stock exchange. What 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 were the community notices again, Pete? Buy, buy, sell, sell. I didn't get anything out of this. Buy, 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 sell, sell. It's impossible. And that's what's going on in the temple. The temple is like the fig tree. It's got all the signs and the activity and the busyness of worship and true spirituality, but no real fruit. Religion was killing worship. Religion was stifling prayer. Religion was staffing spirituality. And so Jesus clears the temple. Jesus is passionate about the nations. Jesus is passionate about non-Jews hearing about God as well. Jesus is passionate about you and I hearing about God. So do you know this Jesus? Like, I want you to ask yourself, as you read what Jesus did in the temple, flipping tables, clearing it out, were you passive or were you passionate like Jesus? Do you share his heart for the nations? quick way to test this is to ask yourself, do I pray for our mission partners? The Sheeds in Chile, the Wrights in Fiji, the Stars in Oran Park, the Goscombs up in Wickham in Western Australia. Do you, do you pray for them? When the prayer update comes out in the weekly email, and do you, do you pray or do you kind of overlook it and delete the email? Do you share Jesus' heart for the nations? But it gets sharper than that. Because we live in a city that is wonderfully diverse. It's a wonderful, exciting city to live in. All sorts of different religions. Catholic, Orthodox, Baha'i, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. As you look out upon that diversity of religion, are you passive or are you passionate for them to know Jesus too? And when the chatter starts at work or at the school gate or with friends and family and and people kind of say, oh look, it doesn't matter what people believe. I mean, it's all basically the same, isn't it? As long as you've got faith. Do, do you just, are you passive with that or do you try to cut through the chatter? Not in a nasty, self-righteous way, but in a gracious, gentle way that lets Jesus shine. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook during the week. A quote from Augustine, the uh, ancient historian and theologian. I've read in Plato and Cicero, ancient philosophers, sayings that are wise and very beautiful, but I've never read in either of them, come to me all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The incomparable Christ. It's not nasty, it's not pushy, it's gracious and gentle and it lets Jesus shine. So in this city of religions, are you passive Or are you passionate for all people to know Jesus? Well, that's first, the temple, passive or passionate. Now we move to faith, trite or trust. And it comes to us with this strange, troubling thing that Jesus says in verse 24 that we're not quite sure what to do with. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Does it really say that? 
Did Jesus really say that? Well, it's right there. What does he mean? Does it mean you can name something and believe that you've got it and then you'll receive it? Like I name a sports car, uh, a successful career, a good health, and if I believe enough, then I can just claim it. We know that can't be right. Unless you see God as a genie in the sky kind of giving out three wishes to everyone, you know that can't be right. If you know that God is the God of the universe, whose plans and purposes are far bigger than we can imagine, then we know that can't be right. He's not there to tick off our bucket list. But if we don't get this right, we can go to some horrible places. I heard a story of a pastor in the United States uh, who taught that if you believe enough, you can have whatever you ask for. And then his wife got cancer. And he said, we're believing she's going to get better. And she didn't get better. She got worse. And then it was terminal. And she had months to live. And he got up and in front of the church, he publicly rebuked her for not having enough faith. It's hard to believe that anyone would do that. See, this is where it can lead if you've got a very name it and claim it view. So it's not that. And yet Jesus says, whatever you ask. What does that mean? Well, one of the really helpful things for us is that James, the younger brother of Jesus, and John, the disciple, also asked that question. And, and so as we read on the New Testament, we see them answering that. And we have to do a little bit of hard work here, but I think it'll be really helpful. Uh, James says this in James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, when you pray, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See what he says there? It doesn't matter how much you believe, if you ask for selfish motives, you're not going to get it. Prayer should be about service and love of others, not selfish gain. And then John says in 1 John 5, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. Isn't that wonderful? We have confidence to approach God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So he uses that word whatever again, like Jesus does. But verse 14 tells us that's anything according to his will. So ask according to his will is the point. And then Jesus says in verse 25, if you're praying and you, don't, and you need to forgive someone, make sure you forgive. So to roll all that together, the kind of prayer that starts with a desire to forgive others, the kind of prayer that's not about selfish gain but serving others, the kind of prayer that seeks and is looking to live out God's will is the kind of prayer that Jesus says God loves to answer with a yes. So what's God's will? How do I know that? Well, we have the Bible. It's full of God's will. Dig into the Bible for God's will. Short answer, though, for today, because that's a whole separate sermon series, is if you're praying, ask yourself, is what I'm asking about bringing glory to Jesus? Will will it help others know Jesus? Will it help me grow in my faith? That sounds like a prayer that's according to God's will. All that helps us, doesn't it? Helps us understand a little bit more of what Jesus is saying and our prayers, I think, will be different as a result. But as I've wrestled with uh, this passage over the last week, I've wanted more than that. Here's the question I've been wrestling with and pondering. Why does Jesus say these words here? Like he could have put it anywhere in his teaching, but he puts it here right after clearing the temple and cursing the fig tree. Why does he say it here? 
Well, think about it. Disciples have been on this journey with Jesus. They've seen him do and say things that have blown their minds. They've heard him say that he's going to die. Three times he's told them he's going to die. He's gone into Jerusalem. He's cleared out the temple. He's cursed the fig tree. He said the whole temple system is corrupt and bankrupt. So, so just pause for a moment. He's told them, you're going to see me murdered. And everything that you cling to, the temple is completely bankrupt. Don't look there. That would have to be up there with the most devastating, cataclysmic, unsettling, troubling things that they could have heard. So what are you going to hang on to? Like if your whole world is disappearing, what are you going to hang on to? Well, Jesus says, verse 23, 22, have faith in God. And not a kind of passive, just survive, hang on faith, but a really bold faith, a courageous faith. He says, verse 23, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Jesus uses a a Hebrew, ancient Hebrew picture there of something that's impossible. Throw a mountain in the sea. (laughs) That's impossible. It would be like for us saying, imagine... A government that never broke its promises. (laughs) Impossible. Imagine affordable housing in Sydney. (laughs) Impossible. Imagine the Parramatta Eels winning a premiership. (laughs) Impossible. You get the point. So I want you to imagine you are one of the disciples. You've walked with Jesus for three years. You've seen him do stuff that has just blown you away. You love him. You want to follow him. And then you see him betrayed and executed You see his corpse laid in the tomb and now you're hiding in a building in a room with the doors locked because you're afraid that you're next. And then someone says to you, hey, guess what? Within a couple of months, you're going to be preaching to crowds, hundreds, thousands of people saying that Jesus is Lord and you're going to plant churches all over the Roman Empire. Impossible. Not just that. Within 300 years, there'll be 31 million people worshipping Jesus. Half the known world will worship Jesus. Impossible. Oh, not just that. The good news of Jesus will spread and spread and cover the whole earth so that in 2015 there'll be a thriving church in Norwest. Impossible. Do you know this Jesus? When we say we have faith in Jesus, is that just a trite, churchy thing that we say? Or do we have a deep trust in the God who can do anything? Have you noticed how often we limit our prayers to what we think we could reasonably manage ourselves? Trust in God who can do anything and you will see the impossible happen. Do you know this, Jesus? Well, we've seen the temple, passive or passionate. We've seen faith, trite or trust. And we'll end where we began, with Jesus marching into Jerusalem. I want to ask you, as we read that before, What was going on inside you? As you read of the crowds throwing their cloaks and their branches before Jesus and and crying out, Hosanna, save and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What was going on inside you? Were you a spectator? Were you saying, I remember this, I've read this before. Yes, of course, that's the fulfilment of Zechariah 9.9. Oh yes, this is the king coming into Jerusalem. Were you a spectator, an observer, a commentator? Or was there something going on inside you that wanted to celebrate? That wanted to be there? 
cheering with the crowds, throwing your cloak and branches and not just a few branches. I want to throw a whole forest and not just that, my hopes, my dreams, my whole life at the feet of Jesus. Did did you want to be there and grab the crowd and say, do you see who it is? He's the one who made the sun and the moon. He's the hope and light of the world. Did you want to celebrate? Do you know him? Do you share Jesus' passion for the nations? Is your faith trite, churchy, or is it a deep trust in the God who can do everything? And as you think of Jesus marching into Jerusalem, are you a spectator or are you celebrating? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the things that Jesus has done and said in Mark 11, for how they trouble us and unsettle us. And we ask that for each of us, that they wouldn't leave us just ambiguous or indifferent, but that you would use this to stir in us a deep love and worship of the Lord Jesus, that we would know him deeply, that we would have a faith, as Jesus says, that metaphorically can move mountains as we trust in you. We have a passion for the nations to know Jesus and that we want to celebrate Jesus with everything that we have. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.